Lives of the Unconscious. A podcast on psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Episode 5. Attachment. Such stuff as souls are made on. Test thou therefore he who binds forever. Following this poetic advice from Friedrich Schiller would do much to decrease the rate of divorce in our society. The word attachment, or to attach, is quite ambivalent in daily usage and commands a wealth of synonyms, to bind, tie, connect, sink, just to name a few. It isn't easy for someone who was attached to leave the relationship easily. It is not for nothing that we say of a couple that they plan to tie the knot, or that despite being in different locations, users of social media connect to the web, sync their accounts, and may even have a hard time disconnecting. Or the self-evident nature of the expression, the tie that binds. Or think of the contract that legally attaches us to our telephone provider or technology company, which then attaches their customers through the compatibility of devices and software. Even the dark ruler Sauron, for those in the know, forged his one ring to bring them all and in the darkness bind them. At the same time, we understand attachment as imbued with something existentially important and valuable. The close emotional relationship that can develop between two people. The special connection between two lovers when the chemistry is right, but also between siblings or between parents and their children. And like with our telephone company, a contract or a warranty isn't necessary for this purpose. That is, until it comes to marriage or inheritance. We also feel the connection to people that are important to us when we quarrel. Also when that person is far away, out of town, when we haven't seen them in a long time, especially when they have passed away. Attachment is thus not only the external relationship between two people, but rather something that we carry deep within our hearts. We should pay attention to this aspect, for in doing so, one speaks here of the internalisation of attachment, we are dealing with an essential element of our own psychological organisation. When children come into the world, they, unlike some other animal species, lack the ability to survive alone, without outside help, for even a couple hours, they must be looked after by their parents, protected and provided for. For us humans, this time in which we remain in the nest of our parents is extraordinarily long, and some never really find their way out. Nature has constituted mammals such that in most cases, a close emotional relationship is automatically formed at birth between the child and its parents, and which is sustainable and essential for the survival of the child. The hormone oxytocin, also called the love hormone, which is released at birth and later during nursing, plays an important role in this process. Everyone who at one time has held their own child in their arms likely knows what that feels like, or how torturous it can be to go without this feeling. By the way, an equally close emotional relationship can develop between father and child, as between mother and child so long as the father has enough contact with said child. 
The bond that emerges between parent and child is not only essential for the primary care of the child. Equally important is the emotional relationship. And it is here where one of the cornerstones for the psychological stability or instability later on in life is laid. An extreme case is illustrated by the so-called Kaspar Hauser experiments. Horrible experiments in which infants were provided with sustenance but not love or affection or emotional warmth. These children died shortly after birth or suffered severe damages. It has been said that the famous emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, Friedrich II, that he conducted such experiments on human children. This took place as early as the 13th century. The attachment researcher Harry Harlow performed such terrible experiments on baby monkeys in the 1950s. From an ethical perspective, these experiments deserve condemnation. Nevertheless, they contributed towards identifying attachment as a basic need, on a par with hunger and thirst and sleep, at a time in which entirely different parenting ideals held sway. Children who have been severely neglected emotionally by their parents suffer from serious dysfunction in brain development, as well as in emotional development. Conversely, children who experience emotional affection early on acquire a psychological stability that protects them against major incidents and losses later in life. The correlation between mental health and early attachment has been verified in a multiplicity of studies from the founders of modern attachment theory, the psychoanalysts John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth, to contemporary psychoanalytic researchers such as Mary Target or Peter Fonagy, who have made very valuable contributions to the field. Important for our purposes is what we just characterised as the internalisation of attachment, that which we experience in our relationship to our parents and then later to other people, becomes a part of us and remains in us, even once that person isn't there anymore. If that were otherwise, if, say, those we love didn't become a part of us, then we wouldn't feel close to them, love or miss them, when they depart on a train. It would be correct to say, out of sight, out of mind. For some mental illnesses, by the way, this is precisely the case, as we will soon hear. The fact that we hang on to a piece of our partner, even when they are gone, gives us security lets us feel comforted and safe, even while we are alone. We know there is someone who is there for us, who is close to us, and this connection knows neither space nor time. For children who are existentially dependent upon their parents, attached to them, as it were, this is all the more so. In fact, the internalisation of attachment, through which the other becomes a part of one's own psyche, is in early childhood not to be taken for granted. First, children must strive to acquire so-called object permanence. That means the mental image that someone who has just disappeared from sight, say the mother who has just left the room, nonetheless still exists and hasn't disappeared altogether. Studies by the famous Swiss developmental psychologist Jean Piaget show that children first command a stable mental image of inanimate objects around the ages of two or three, 
such that if an object disappears, say a carrot that an examiner has just moved behind an opaque screen, the child will search for it at that very spot where they just last saw it. Though more recent studies have adjusted the age further forwards. When the mothers or fathers of a one to two year old leaves a room that is alien to the child, for instance, the waiting room of a doctor's office, the child usually becomes restless, begins to scream, to cry, to search for the parent. They need the mother close, or at least some other person nearby to offer assurance in order to feel safe. In attachment research, one can examine this behavioural mechanism in so-called strange situation tests, in which children are separated from their mothers for a short moment and looked after by some unfamiliar person. An emotional reaction from the child, such as being sad or crying, is completely normal. And yet equally important is that once the mother returns, she can calm the child and modulate their negative feelings once again. In this case, one would speak of a secure attachment. Only once the child has frequently enough experienced the mother as present, as tending to them sensitively, devoting herself to the child, and that she will not stay away for too long, can they internalise the mother. Then the child can manage to be alone for a while, even wish to be alone, no longer in need of the constant presence of the mother, and will be able to endure short moments of parting, because the child now carries a part of the mother within themselves. Here one speaks of attachment representations, in a sense the internal image of parental love. By the way, from this point of view, sending a child to daycare or some other childcare facility at such an early stage deserves to be evaluated critically. Childcare professionals, like grandma and grandpa, can indeed substitute the primary caregiver for a while, but only if they have enough time to foster individual emotional contact and attachment to the child, and to intensively devote themselves to the child. Research in this area has shown that this is only possible if the staff ratio is no lower than one teacher per three children, which is often far from the reality, where teachers are responsible for up to ten kids. Incidentally, the younger the child, the more important the intensive supervision of reliable caregivers. If the early attachment between parents and children is disrupted, for example because one parent is mentally ill, then the child cannot internalise enough secure experiences, which, depending on severity and the corrective role of other influences, can have completely divergent consequences. There are people who, similar to children, have great difficulty in being alone, who must always have other people around them, and for whom separation is difficult to bear, and yet who nevertheless cannot seem to have enough contact who continuously become entangled in new and often conflict-ridden relationships. Here one speaks of an enmeshed or preoccupied attachment pattern. This is often underlain by early childhood experiences, in which the parents can't fully bear and calm the child's fears, an aspect that we will come back to in our episode on so-called containing. Conversely, it is also possible that a child who perhaps at an early age, has had to experience loneliness and absence, can seemingly do without close attachments. 
the child has internalized an image of attachment without any reliable expectation for parental sensitivity. An internal sketch that could be expressed in the following way. Others don't really seem to care about me. They can stay away, even when I need them. Nothing can be relied upon. Close relationships are disappointing and painful. It's better that I rely only upon myself. In this way, what emerges is known as an avoidant attachment pattern. These people avoid close emotional relationships, or indeed enter into close relationships and yet avoid any intense emotional contact in those relationships. They are particularly allergic to dependency, and they go out of their way so that they don't have to feel dependent, say by inversely making others dependent upon them. They are good at being alone. However, this isn't a case of stable inner certainty. Life involves forming dependencies, such as when one is sick and needs help from others, like doctors or psychotherapists, or when one loves. Incidentally, people with unsecure avoidant attachment often end up with great inner hardships and anxieties. At the bedrock of nearly all mental illnesses, which cannot be directly attributed to organic causes, lie specific relationship experiences. To keep it concise, what within us is damaged was once damaged in the relationship to someone else, usually an early caregiver, whereby the first six years have been identified by attachment researchers as formative. This is evident in the example of anxiety disorders, which oftentimes are associated with specific attachment experiences. Here, the feeling of inner safety, the internalization of stable attachments, hasn't been fully cultivated. Their inner security lacks that which most of us take for granted. They have to do something in order to preserve equilibrium, perhaps through extensive contact with others, or a strong inclination towards reflection and intellect, or through consuming sedatives like alcohol. However, through changes in life, say moving house, graduating from school or university, beginning or ending a relationship, the person can be cast into turmoil, reacting with strong, perhaps even catastrophic fears, say in the form of panic attacks, just like a kid who, without the protection of his parents, is utterly at the mercy of uncharted circumstances. At the base of many forms of mental illness lie even graver attachment experiences. Within childhood, one would call this disorganised attachment, whereas the other forms of insecure attachment are able to find some functioning strategy or another, which, during stressful situations, can more or less establish psychological equilibrium. Avoidant, not entering into relationships, enmeshed, affixing oneself to relationships. With disorganised attachment, there is no reliable strategy at all. Disorganised attachments are often linked to attachment traumas, experience of violence, or neglect, as well as other highly problematic patterns in relationships between caregivers and children. A child who has been abused doesn't only have to struggle with a horrific experience. They have been confronted psychologically with a completely irreconcilable experience. The person who is supposed to reassure, and who in other situations may do exactly this, 
the person they should be able to flee to in moments of fear, where they can find security, is at the same time the source of fear. Fearmonger and caregiver are one and the same person. For children, this is coupled with massive confusion, has grave consequences for psychological development, and, in the case of attachment trauma, can manifest itself in cerebral development. Disorganised attachment experiences, among others, have also been studied in the phenomena of the double bind, that is, communicative situations in which the child cannot find a way out of contradictory emotional messages. Such as when a mother summons her child to come closer and offer her love. Come show me that you love me. But then, perhaps because the closeness suddenly becomes unpleasant for her, recoils as soon as the child wants to hug her, at which point the child retreats. And yet the mother responds to this resentfully. What, you don't love your mother? Whatever the child does, whether it comes closer or leaves the mother alone, it is always wrong, and the child is confronted with a lack of emotional affection. The principle, wash me, but do not get me wet, has here dramatic psychological consequences. This example also illustrates the disquieting effect of parentification, that is, when the roles between parent and children are reversed and small children are meant to assume the task of fulfilling the needs of their parents, dispelling them of their fears, and regulating them psychologically, while in the normal case it should be precisely the other way around. What is thereby important is of course not individual situations, but rather the general way in which the relations between child and caregiver is structured, whereby experiences with other forms of attachment, such as with a grandparent, can have a compensatory effect. Attachment research has shown that attachment trauma, or lasting interactive experiences of this sort, can be accompanied by severe mental illnesses, as in so-called borderline personality disorders, although here too the origin of the disease is very complex and heterogeneous. However early attachment experiences develop, they have an immense influence on the development of a person. And even when our experiences are favourable, we receive love and affection, attachment ultimately always has painful consequences that nothing can spare us from. Those who bind themselves are always also confronted with the problem of separation. For what we love can wound us deeply if it must one day be lost. Even the best and most intimate relationships must one day come to an end. Even in wedding ceremonies, we are reminded of this with the words, till death do us part. But we will speak about separation in another episode. This podcast was written and produced by Cecile Lutz and Jakob Müller. It has been translated by Suleiman Lawrence and is read by Rebecca Dyson-Smith.